Before we begin our Torah study, let's pray together. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam asher kidshanu b'mitzvotav netzivanu la'asok b'divrei Torah. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who sanctifies us with his commands and commands us to engross ourselves in the words of Torah. Amen. Yeshua was asked, what's the greatest commandment? And he answered it without pause or without uncertainty. He said, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And, and then he said, the second great command is to love your neighbors yourself. So one of our great callings is to serve God. And another calling is to serve people, to To do this takes nothing less than love for God. It's not enough to be religious. That won't keep you going. It's necessary to love God with all that you are and to love people. If we want to fulfill our calling, we'll need love for God and love for people. And and some folks are tempted to separate them and to say, well, I can love God, but people, you know, they're rotten. You can't trust people. And other people feel, where is God? How do I find him? People I can understand. And, and so people are tempted to separate these two. But Yeshua said, these two belong together. They, they are the foundation of understanding the scriptures. He said, all of the Torah and all of the prophets hang upon these two. And his disciples, the, uh, the apostles, continued to teach generation after generation through their writings that, that it's necessary to not only love God but to love people, but it's a challenge. And in fact, in the New Testament scriptures, they wrote about how it was a challenge for them. And when you read the Gospels, Mark, Matthew, Luke, for example, you'll see a number of occasions where they're describing what a challenge it was for them. We'll look at, at, at some of those details. So the question is, how does love grow inside of us? What does it take to strengthen love in us? And, and I want to I tell you that it is through your experience of love that you are enabled to love. We enter this world unable to take care of ourselves, dependent on the love and the kindness of other human beings, without which we will die. We cannot be born and take care of ourselves. It's not possible. And some say that when you leave this world, your last days may be in the same condition as your first days, where you're dependent on other people and their mercy and their care. And I've observed that between that time of being a baby and that time of being near the end, we do everything we can to establish our independence and to try to get by without needing anybody else. And we try to fulfill our desires and our needs in our own power. And here in America, we're particularly dedicated to it. Once I was having fun with Messianic rabbis at a conference, and I said, let's rise and declare the, the Pledge of Independence. And I, I was mixing things up for them, and they were all ready to do it. 
And it was just a joke. But here in America, we tend to be more committed to being independent than almost anything else. But the fact is, none of us is really independent. We need each other. We need God, and we need each other. And when we try to live without God, our lives will not work right. And when we try to live independently of people, our lives won't work right. To serve the Lord, we have to experience love and then share that love. We can't just hoard it. It has a shelf life, if you will. You can store it up if you are sharing it. It stays fresh, if you will. And so what's important for us is to remember when has God shown us his love? When has he protected us? And as we remember what the scriptures say, that we love because he first loved us. Then we are able to show other people love. Well, in the same way that love grows in us, comfort grows in us. The comfort that we receive is not just for us, it becomes useful to other people. When you receive mercy and love, when other people show you kindnesses, it empowers you to show mercy and love to other people. And the opposite can work. If someone irritates you, it can put you on edge, where you don't feel like being nice to the next person. And you... You know, you're grumpy. Have you ever been grumpy because of one thing, but you show it to another group of people? I'm not the only one who's done this. I know. The mercy and love that's shown to us empowers us to show mercy and love to other people. Now, with that in mind, I I was thinking about these things as I was reading on the Messianic Rabbis Forum this past week, how rabbis in our movement were processing the issues around what happened in Charlottesville and the particular thinking that Messianic rabbis had uh, and how they were understanding. And I noticed this, that many, many of the rabbis were taking note that our congregations are diverse. Look around and you can see. Our congregation is not unique in this fashion. We have people in our congregation from different countries. People who are ethnically and racially diverse, economically and educationally diverse. Uh, We have tall people as well. And we have short people. How many of you remember Randy Newman's song? Short people, right? Short people, got no reason. (laughs) I won't go on. My father at the time, he was my father the whole time, but at the time, my father, (laughs) at uh, at the time, my father, who uh, had a popular radio station, He was a little put off by Randy Newman's song. He thought it was funny, but he was kind of short. And so he had his disc jockeys record another version, which was Tall People. And they, yeah. 
We've got a lot of diversity in our movement. In fact, we're called to be diverse because we are to be a demonstration of God's plan to bring Jewish people together with people from other nations and to find common ground in serving God and serving each other together. And we do this in a Messianic synagogue. There are lots of churches that are diverse. There are many synagogues that are diverse. But Messianic synagogues lift up the name of Yeshua. We proclaim that Yeshua is the Messiah. And we not only proclaim God's continuing covenant with the Jewish people, but his interest in and his desire for Jews and Gentiles to be together in, in, in love, in unity, and not just to tolerate each other, but to love each other. I believe as do many of the Messianic rabbis who are thinking about this and were making plans for speaking to their congregations this Shabbat, uh, I believe that we can be useful to God and we can be useful to our country, to our nation, in bringing reconciliation and healing. And the reason I think we can be useful is because we've experienced persecution. We've experienced misunderstanding. We've experienced oppression. We've experienced bigotry. I grew up in Roanoke, Virginia, uh, where anti-Semitism and racism were a part of everyday life. And though we hoped for it to be different, we didn't expect that it would be different on a daily basis. And we thought we will always experience anti-Semitism. And blacks will always experience racism. And other minorities will always experience prejudice. We just thought this would happen. And so we had to be prepared to live as a minority in what felt like a hostile place. And what gave us strength and what gave us courage is that prophetic hope that one day, it would be different. And for it to be different, many people have theories as to how change can come about, but the scriptures give us an understanding of how real change comes about. The ones who have suffered and received comfort will comfort others while they're suffering. The ones who have been oppressed and mistreated will help others come out of oppression and mistreatment. Now, none of us likes this plan. All of us prefer to avoid the problems ourselves so that we can then counsel other people how to avoid the problems. You know, what's really popular in America are get-rich-quick schemes. Uh, the idea that you'd have to earn your money over a long period of time through hard work, not so popular. In the same way that fast food is popular, fast money is popular. And fast change is popular. But the reality is societies change slowly, people change slowly. And the way that we change positively is by going through challenges ourselves and finding comfort and finding help and finding strength, discovering what we truly value and receiving love and care and concern from other people during the difficulties that we go through. 
So I, I grew up as a Jew facing persecution and, and prejudice and discrimination, anti-Semitism, and that did not make me only want to see anti-Semitism lose its potency. It made me want to see other forms of hatred lose their potency too. And I remember talking to my father many times about what people would do when the KKK planned to do a march in Roanoke, or when neo-Nazis were planning to do a, a march. And there were some times when counter-demonstrations were organized. But one of the things that was most interesting to me, and hardest to understand, was when community leaders like my father would come together and they would look at the situation that they were facing and they, they might say, you know, this time it's only five clansmen coming. Let's do nothing and deny them the publicity that they're looking for. That was hard to understand because I thought, you know, we should always be strong and stand up. But he said, sometimes, son, there are times when the only goal they have is to spread their hatred through publicity. And if they don't get the publicity, they'll go somewhere else. And there were other times when there was effort to raise another voice and bring together community leaders from many different backgrounds. And the, the media, the newspaper and the TV stations and radio stations cooperated in, in this goal by giving greater voice to those who are standing together and showing mutual respect and kindness to each other than they did to those who were just speaking hate. Now, I can tell you this. We live in America, and people have the right to do hateful things and to say hateful things. Freedom of speech is part of our constitutional right. And I got many... Uh, lessons from my father about the need for freedom of speech, even for those who say and do detestable things. And he would tell me that we have to defend their right, even though we're against their message and against what they stand for. And he said, we have to stand up even for the rights of those who do detestable things, because if we don't stand up for everyone's rights, our rights of freedom of speech will be taken away too. It'll only be a matter of time. And I got that deep inside of me. And I understand that to this day. But I can tell you things have changed since then. These are decades later. The situations are not the same. The, the nature of communication, the nature of... Uh, Action is, is, is not the same, and the extremes that people are willing to go to now are different than they were at other times. Plus, we're dealing with a changed milieu. There's now different forms of terrorism that are happening all over the world and being embraced by terroristic groups, and one of them is vehicular assaults and homicides. And so to see that happen in Charlottesville, to see it happen in Barcelona, to see it happen in Nice, France, and in other places in the United States and in Europe and all over the world, it's, it's just it's sobering, and we have to pay attention to the situation we're living in. 
Having said that about the constitutional rights, I can tell you this. There aren't rabbis, messianic rabbis or traditional rabbis, who are going to be standing up this weekend and saying, Nazis are okay. After all, they're citizens of America and they have constitutional rights. Nobody's going to be saying that we're 100% against the Nazi movement. We're 100% against the KKK and against racism. 100%. And so there's, there's no middle ground in that. But we also need to understand that we have opportunity to show kindnesses and help to people who are caught in the middle and don't know how to sort things out. Now, to give you some background, I want to read to you from a letter that was written by the president of the Reform Synagogue in Charlottesville. His name is Alan Zimmerman. And he wrote a letter that, that was distributed to others in his movement, Reform Judaism, and then distributed nationally through the internet. And he tried to describe what Saturday was like at their synagogue in Charlottesville, because they had known for several weeks that neo-Nazis were coming to town. And the Nazis had um, suggested that they were going to do something at the synagogue. Interestingly, the synagogue in Charlottesville, you know what its name is? Beth Israel. Yeah, It's reform. It's not messianic. But I want to share some of what he wrote because it's important for you to understand the thinking and the experience that others have. I want you to get a sense of what they were going through at that synagogue last Saturday and what they faced. So I'm going to read some excerpts. And he wrote this, of course, you know, under his name and uh, in the first person. So whenever I'm reading from him and I say, I, it's not me, it's him. But I'll, I'll clarify that as, as we go along. So he started by saying, A congregation Beth Israel in Charlottesville, Virginia. We're deeply grateful for the support and prayers that we've received. Our thoughts and prayers are with the families of Heather Hare, Hare and the two Virginia State police officers, H.J. Cullen and Burke Bates, who lost their lives on Saturday. And with the many people injured in the attack who are still recovering. The loss of life far outweighs any fear or concern felt by me or the Jewish community during the past several weeks as we brace for this Nazi rally, but the effects of both will each linger. He continues, Last Saturday morning, I stood outside our synagogue with the armed security guard we hired after the police department refused to provide us with an officer during morning services. Even the police department's limited promise of an observer near our building was not kept. And note, we did not ask for protection of our property, only our people as they worshipped. Forty congregants were inside. Here's what I witnessed during that time. For half an hour, three men dressed in fatigues and armed with semi-automatic rifles stood across the street from the temple. Had they tried to enter, I don't know what I could have done to stop them, but I couldn't take my eyes off them either. Perhaps the presence of our armed guard deterred them. Perhaps their presence was just a coincidence, and I'm paranoid, I don't know. 
Several times, parades of Nazis passed our building shouting, there's the synagogue, followed by chants of Sieg Heil and other anti-Semitic language. Some carried flags with swastikas and other Nazi symbols. When services ended, my heart broke as I advised congregants that it would be safer to leave the temple through the back entrance rather than through the front and to please go in groups. And he continues by saying, this is 2017 in the United States of America. Alan Zimmerman continues, later that day I arrived on the scene shortly after the car plowed into peaceful protesters. It was a horrific and bloody scene. Soon we learned that Nazi websites had posted a call to burn our synagogue. I sat with one of our rabbis and wondered whether we should go back to the temple to protect the building. What could I do if I were there? Fortunately, it was just talk, but we had already deemed such an attack within the realm of possibilities, taking the precautionary step of removing our Torahs, including a Holocaust scroll from the premises. Again, this is in America in 2017. Local police faced an unprecedented problem that day, but make no mistake, Jews are a specific target of these groups. And despite nods of understanding from officials about our concerns, and despite the fact that the mayor himself is Jewish, we were left to our own devices. The fact that a calamity did not befall the Jewish community of Charlottesville on Saturday was not thanks to our politicians, our police, or even our own efforts, but to the grace of God. And yet in the midst of all that, other moments stand out for me as well. John Aguilar, a 30-year Navy veteran, took it upon himself to stand watch over the synagogue through services Friday evening and Saturday, along with our armed guard. He just felt he should. A frail, elderly woman approached me Saturday morning as I stood on the steps in front of our sanctuary. She was crying, and she told me that while she was Roman Catholic, she wanted to stay and watch over the synagogue with us. At one point she asked, why do they hate you? I had no answer to the question we've been asking ourselves for thousands of years. At least a dozen complete strangers stopped by as we stood in front of the synagogue Saturday to ask if we wanted them to stand with us. Most attention now is and for the foreseeable future will be focused on the deaths and injuries that occurred and that is as it should be But for most people, before the week is out, Saturday's events will degenerate into the all-too-familiar bickering that is part of the larger, ongoing political narrative. The media will move on, and all it will take is some new tweet. So those are some of the words from Alan Zimmerman, president of Congregation Beth Israel in Charlottesville, Virginia. And I wanted to share them with you so that you had a sense of what it was like for another synagogue last Saturday. Very different from maybe some of the information you would have or some of the thoughts and perspectives you might have had from news coverage. I want you to understand something that when people are being threatened and other people come and comfort them, it makes a profound difference. And Alan Zimmerman made a point, not only of communicating the threat and the sense of danger 
and the sense of aloneness in one way. He made it a point to communicate we're not really alone because God is looking for us. And there are other people of different backgrounds who stand with us and watch with us and for us. And this shows how important it is to bring comfort that you've received to other people. If you don't have it, you can't give it away. But if you've experienced it, you can share it with others. And when you share it with others, it will require moral courage. It will require faith on your part. It will require hope for good. It does require a desire to do good. Now, having said that, I want to connect all this to something that Yeshua taught about. Because one of the most beautiful aspects of Yeshua's teachings is the way that he brings clarity to controversy. And he often focuses on details that other people ignore, and then he ignores details everyone else is focusing on. And a great example of this came to mind is the story about the ongoing argument among his disciples about prestige, power, and greatness. And I say ongoing argument because Mark wrote about it, Matthew wrote about it, Luke wrote several times about it. And if, if you put the whole thing together, you'll see they were arguing up until the last minute at the last supper, the last Passover. They're arguing which of them is the greatest. One time, Yeshua was, like, irritated. And he said, uh, you want to be great? Serve in the children's ministry. And not many of his disciples took him up on that. Several times Luke notes that the disciples were arguing which of them was the greatest, but I want to focus on Matthew because the way he wrote about the ongoing disputes is particularly interesting, and it involves a Jewish mother, which is not fair play. When you bring the Jewish mother into the argument, it, it's cheating, Matthew chapter 20, starting in verse 20, it says, The mother of Zebedee's sons came to Yeshua with her sons, and she kneeled down and asked a favor from him. You know, so already this is not fair play. You can't get the mothers involved. Yeshua says, What do you want? And she says, Grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right hand, and the other at your left in your kingdom. You know, so they've been arguing who's the greatest, and now mom's involved. Yeshua, let's just make sure something's secure here. My boys belong on the right side and the left side right next to you. That's what I want. Yeshua said, you don't know what you're asking. And then he said to them, can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? And they said, yeah, sure we can. And he said... Right. In fact, you will have to drink from this cup. 
But to sit at my right or left hand is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they've been prepared by my father. Verse 24 is interesting. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. And the nature of their indignancy is very clear if you read all the accounts in the Gospels. The indignancy is, who do they think they are? We're the greatest. The ten in agreement, those two, they're schleppers. Yeshua called them all together. And I I think any parent who has more than one child can relate to this. Where you see your kids misbehaving and you want them to have the right attitude towards each other and to be sweet to each other and kind to each other. And and, uh, they get into fights and they're blaming each other. My grandchildren can remember some moments where one of them screaming, he hit me. And the other one says, well, he hit me first. And so now I know they're both guilty. And it took them a while to figure out. They've just, you know, confessed that they were guilty of hitting each other. But Yeshua looks at, at these guys. And he doesn't try to separate which one of them is right and which is wrong and who really is the greatest. He says they're all thinking in the wrong way. They all have a wrong perspective because they're all arguing for themselves being the greatest. And so he calls them together and he says, you know that the rulers of the Gentile nations lorded over them and their high officials dominate and try to subordinate them. So Yeshua knows that all of them are wrestling with exactly the same problem. They've got the same wrong thinking. And this thinking has gotten a hold of them. They've been contaminated by the thinking of the world. And they think like the world thinks about power and prestige and greatness. And then Yeshua says, verse 26, not so with you. Now that is an expression of hope, because at that moment, it is the way they're thinking. But he's saying, no, it's not to be this way with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must become your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your servant. Now, just so that you know that these are not religious words that he's using, so they can't be, like, uh, glossed over as just sweet language. In Hebrew, the word for servant and the word for slave is identical. And so Yeshua is saying it, it's that even a willingness to be a slave to another. Hard to imagine. And then he explains in verse 28, verse 27 first, whoever wants to be first must be your servant. And at another time he said, the one who would be the greatest would be the servant of all. In verse 28 he says, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but rather to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
So Yeshua is saying, I'm telling you this because this is how I'm living. I didn't call you just to serve me. I've been serving you. And up to this point, they didn't get it. That's why they're having this argument. And it, it continues in one form or another. It's only after he's arrested and after he's tried as a criminal, after he's executed, and then after he's resurrected from the dead and returns, it's only then that they really have a change of heart. And they realize that Yeshua didn't come just to overthrow the kingdoms of the world in order to establish another worldly kingdom. He came to establish the kingdom of God, which is a serving kingdom, where the good of others and the good of the Lord are the highest priorities. Not one's personal peace, but the well-being of others. Yeshua understood that all of his disciples needed an attitude adjustment. And when we read this, we could say, oh, those guys, you know. But it's not them, it's all of us. We all need an attitude adjustment. People everywhere have difficulty having the heart of being a servant to other people. Everyone wants to be in charge of what he wants to be in charge of. Now, in this week's Torah portion, in Deuteronomy, we read about the call that we have. Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 2. You are a people holy to the Lord your God. Out of all the peoples on the face of the earth, the Lord has chosen you to be his treasured possession. Some people read this about chosenness and they think of privilege. But what's clear is chosenness has to do with responsibility. And the responsibility as the prophets, as the apostles, as Yeshua himself taught, the responsibility is to serve the good of others. Peter put it this way, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. You're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession to proclaim the virtues of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So we're called to be a royal priesthood and we're called to proclaim, to declare in words, but more than that, to embody, to put into practice the virtues of God. The virtues that God has demonstrated to us that have transformed us. And this is not so much the gifts of the Spirit as it is the fruit of the Spirit. And we have to know that he called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. So we're not to, to consider ourselves superior than others. We consider ourselves lower. Moses was the one who was most meek, not because he considered himself the inferior, but because he used all of his strength for the good of all the people. And what's the call? To be a royal priesthood. So we have to understand what a priestly ministry is. We have an assignment together to be a priesthood. And the job of the priest is to help guilty people get reconciled to God and restored to God. If people aren't guilty, 
of sinning, if people aren't guilty of independence from God, if they're not guilty of transgressions and iniquity, they don't need a priest. They're fine on their own. But the teachings of the scriptures are very straight and very clear. All have sinned. All have fallen short. All have done what is right in their own minds and their own hearts. All. Even the high priests of Israel were guilty. Even Moses, the teacher of Israel, was guilty. All. All. So that means those that serve in priestly ministry have to experience the forgiveness and the love and the mercy and the reconciliation from God on God's terms so that with that experience, we can serve other people. And it's much easier to embrace the ministry of rebuking and and, uh, finger-pointing. Isaiah 58 talks about this. Because it's so much easier to say, you're bad, you're at fault, we're against you, 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 and you. But Isaiah says, put away the finger pointing. Because that's not what the priest is doing. The priest is coming as one who is guilty himself and is saying, God has been merciful to me. And when I admitted my guilt, he was merciful to me and he forgave me. And he continues to receive me. And so this priestly experience enables us to show the same kindness to other guilty people who want to be reconciled to God. So priests help people be in a right relationship with God and then with one another. And sometimes, instead of this priestly ministry, we're still being tempted by power and prestige and positions of prominence, just like Yeshua's disciples. But we're called to be servants, to serve others, to serve God. Now, as I was preparing for this weekend, I, I was reading what one Messianic rabbi wrote, Rabbi Eric Carlson, cited a relatively obscure, relatively... Um, unpopular scripture. It's obscure because it's not popular. It's not popular because it's about Israel's guilt. And it's from an important period in ancient Israel's history. You can find it in 2 Samuel chapter 21. King David was ruling there and there was an extended famine And King David thought the famine was not just weather or climate related. It wasn't just a natural disaster, if you will. But he thought there was a spiritual issue that needed to be addressed. But he didn't know what it was. But in his spirit, he sensed there's something fundamentally wrong that we need to fix, that we need to deal with. What is it? So he prayed, he sought the Lord for an answer, and the answer he got was very precise. And it had to do with how Israel had killed Gibeonites unjustly. Two verses, 2 Samuel 21, verses 1 and 2. Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. 
And David inquired of the Lord. And the Lord answered, It is because of Saul and his bloodthirsty house because he killed the Gibeonites. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the children of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. The children of Israel had sworn protection to them, but Saul had sought to kill them in his zeal for the children of Israel and Judah. And so here, Saul's acting out of patriotic, ethnocentric motivations. And it's sinful in the eyes of the Lord. And the Lord brought a judgment on Israel, on all of Israel. Saul's long gone at this point. David's king. But the judgment is this. You've got to deal with it. And, and so David takes the first step and he calls the Gibeonites together and he says, uh, we're guilty. You see, that's very unpopular to say we're guilty. What's more popular is to say, we're the greatest. To misunderstand even being shown mercy, even being chosen by God, is not about being superior. It's about being willing to be a servant. It's very, very important. When George Washington was inaugurated as president, one of the things that he did was visit a synagogue and write to them. George Washington wrote to Jewish people in Rhode Island, and he said, now we live in a country where you don't have to settle for tolerance. You have the right to goodwill here. And it was so remarkable that that letter has been preserved and it's brought up at various times by Jewish people who say, you know, what a great country we live in. And he said that you don't live in a country where people are going to be persecuted and discriminated against, and you have all the rights of citizens, and all people in our country do. And that sounded really good, and for the Jewish people, it's like, wow, we finally live in a place where we have citizenship rights and the protection of the government. And you know, not one of our founding fathers at that moment was ready to take the action necessary to extend that same idea to black people. And so in our country, at that point, Jews were free and blacks were not. And then years later, the Dred Scott decision. Are you aware of that? It, just in case you think the Supreme Court always gets everything right, you should be familiar with that. And afterwards, Abraham Lincoln at his second inaugural address, which was very short, he emphasized something, that the country was divided and had been divided. And yet, on both sides were people who believed in God and were praying to the same God against each other. And he said, it's time for healing. And thus, we must be healed because we've already experienced the judgment of God. 
And this war that brought us against each other was the judgment because of our sin. The sin of our slavery and our tolerance of it. And of our racism. And some of the Messianic rabbis have taken note that even though that happened in the 1800s, the racism hasn't completely disappeared since then. If you're not sure of that, ask any black person. Ask any dark-skinned person. Ask anybody who's immigrated here. They'll tell you. You might say, oh, well, everything's changed. Just ask. You'll find out. So we're called to continue to have a heart for one another and to learn from Yeshua not to get caught up in everybody else's arguments. Because this is not just about politicians. It's not about culture and systems and things like that. It's, it's about something that is tearing at the fabric of society and can be repaired if people who love God would love one another. And that is tough to do. It's as tough today as it was in the time of Yeshua, as it was in the time of Moses, and yet it will take nothing less. Now, as we're preparing for the high holidays, we're called to examine ourselves and to take notice of our own sin. And as we do, we read from the prophet Isaiah who speaks words of comfort to us, to encourage us. Because when you find fault with yourself, Sometimes it's discouraging, but here's, here's encouraging words from Isaiah 54, this week's Torah portion, Haftor portion. Verse 13, all your children will be taught by the Lord, and great will be the peace of your children. How many of you are in favor of that? This is a prophetic promise that we need to aim for, but we have not yet experienced. In righteousness, you'll be established. Contra... The idea in your political party you'll be established. You shall be far from oppression, for you shall not fear, and from terror, for it shall not come near you. That's the promise. Not just for us, not just for those like us, but for us to share and spread to other people as well. Isaiah 54 continues, verse 17. No weapon formed against you will prosper, and every tongue which rises against you in judgment you will condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. And their righteousness is from me, says the Lord. Well, when you're tempted to get in an argument over how to process political issues and cultural issues and all sorts of things. Be careful because your master says, don't be of the world here. Don't think the way the Gentile nations are thinking and acting. And if it could happen to 12 nice Jewish boys who are following Yeshua, it could happen to you. (laughs) It could happen to us. And we have to be strong. We have to be strong and mighty to agree with him. And Yeshua said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, if you don't do what I teach you? Wouldn't it be nice if all you had to do was be religious? But more is required of us than that. 
In fact, what's required of us is to learn to love, to love God and to love each other, and nothing less than that will do. And so it's my hope and, and my prayer that, that love of God, love of the God of Israel and love of all the nations of the world will really fill you up so that you can love the others who are suffering even now. And that you won't just look out for your own. And you won't just look to be aligned with people who agree with you. Yeah. Uh oh, because remember what Yeshua said, not so with you. Not so. So you might want to make a note not so with me. Well, that's what's been on my heart, and I wanted to share these things with you. I wanted to help you understand better what Jewish people are experiencing in the face of Nazi actions in America. and the experience and how we process and how Messianic Jewish leaders are thinking about both the challenges and the, the opportunities for service that we have. And I want to challenge you to be useful to God and to each other. So let's pray. Lord, thank you for your mercy and your love to us. Lord, we don't want to be those people who say, I love God and then hate our brothers. We know this, Lord, that... If we love you, we must love our brothers too. And we love you because you first loved us. Thank you for being the origin of love, the very source and sustainer of love. We honor you and we bless you in the name of Yeshua, our Messiah, who died for us and paid the penalty for our sins so that we could live for you and we could live for the sake of restoration. In Yeshua's name we pray. Amen. Let's close with Aaron's blessing. And then after this blessing, I want to encourage you either to stay in the sanctuary for uh, the memorial service or to go next door. Um, But if you go next door or you stay and you have kids, you got to get them. Pick up your children. Yivarechecha Adonai v'yishmarecha Ye'er Adonai p'navelecha v'yichunecha Yisa Adonai p'navelecha v'yisemlecha Shalom. The Lord bless you. The Lord keep watch over you. The, cor- the Lord cause the light of his face to shine upon you. The Lord be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his face to you and give you his peace. In the name of Yeshua, the Prince of Peace. Amen. Shabbat Shalom, everyone.